Hello everyone, I'm Julius Gelstraat, a student business psychology and TEDx organizer. And I'm Miklas de Kok, student economics law and business administration, and also a TEDx organizer. And today we welcome Clo Willaerts, a marketing professional with extensive experience in internet business and offline media. Also, she is an author with already three books on the card, among with which Altijd Naakt, translated as Always Naked, which is about freedom in the virtual space of social media. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, um, Altijd Naakt, Always Naked comes close to our green room talk of, of before. Uh, <laughs> I wrote I wrote a book is actually about online privacy, online yeah, identity yeah. And, and online reputation and how social media changed all that. Mm, um, mm. It's I, I think I wrote it like eight years ago. Um, but then Edward Snowden uh, came with the revelations that social media platforms were forced by the powers that may be in the American government and, and how what people are saying online can be used against them. The irony is that he now lives in Russia and has applied for Russian citizenship. Edward Snowden? Yes. Yeah, okay. Because his, uh, his girlfriend followed him all the way to that secret cold place in Russia and uh, she's pregnant so uh, theoretically if the child is born in Russia it is a Russian citizen so uh, they both decided to apply for Russian citizenship mm -hmm, mm -hmm. interesting man Edward Snowden yeah, yeah. He, he really changed there's a world when it comes to social media and how people uh, think of social media there's the time before and after Edward Snowden there's this um, documentary on Netflix right now the social dilemma yes. uh, which is basically Edward Snowden 2.0 and what did he do to change the way of view viewing to the social media well he is a whistleblower he blew the whistle on um, how one of these secret agencies of the American government uh, was capturing, storing, um, and analyzing the the data that people would publish about themselves, the pictures that they took, where they were, who they were with. Um, they used this against against certain profiles of people. It's the new form of spying, government spying, actually. That's, that was the truth he came out with. But it was only the start. After that, there was a Cambridge Analytics scandal. Um, Cambridge Analytica was uh, a UK institute founded by, among other people, the creep of the century, Steve Bannon, who was the uh, media advisor for Donald Trump. And what Cambridge Analytica basically did was to use these silly personality tests, like which Harry Potter character are you? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, on Facebook, etc. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, to assess what in, in uh, what kind of personality you had, and this could be used fairly, yeah, this could be used to predict uh, how you could influence someone's voting behavior, and they actually tested it in other markets like Haiti, uh, where they would push certain types of fake news to people in order for them to come out in the streets or not, and this is. So it was explicitly designed for voting it was behavior. A, yeah, and uh, this was one of the tools that were used by Team Trump uh, the first time he uh, ran for president. Yeah, is is also because we talked about it uh, such a coincidence with um, 
actually the last three episodes we talked about the social dilemma dilemma and i uh, we always in every episode without any uh, exception we mentioned it uh, because it's also a hot topic i think and it's very important that this comes um, on above in the in the attention again because as you said it started with edward snowden but uh, is also um gaydar so there was also something that we talked about it's also of Cam- cambridge analytics then i guess it's also a function of facebook that was uh, trying to estimate based on your data if you have a uh, tendency to be homosexual or not yeah Basically, a lot of the tools we use on our smartphones, and it's not just social media apps, um, but our smartphone knows more about us than we do. Um, for example, um, if, if you like your search history, it's a very simple example. Um, there are these um, hyper-masculine types uh, linked to alt-right or not, so there's a certain movement there with 20, 30-somethings white males in the United States and uh, they're like, they adore everything that points to hyper masculinity so carrying guns um, eating lots of red meat um, mm. stuff like that and um, they will often shout out that Facebook is ridiculous or Google is ridiculous why are they trying to why are they showing me banners uh, about gay stuff and they don't realize that uh, what is shown to you, and not just ads, is based on what algorithms have detected from your behavior patterns online. Not just your search history, of course. Uh, there are other factors. Um, whether you are depressed or not is something that an algorithm using the data collected through whatever you're doing on your smartphone is something that this algorithm can find out before you realize that you are depressed. And that's why I think as a piece of art, uh, the Steven Spielberg in 2006 made the movie Minority Report with uh, Tom Cruise as a police officer who goes out and arrests people before they commit the crime. And there are these three beings, it's like triplets, they float in some, some kind of a jacuzzi, and, and they are the algorithm. They feed on all these data, the digital breadcrumbs that people leave behind, and based on these patterns, they recognize that, okay, so last time someone went out as a school shooter, they had this for breakfast and their mom, etc., mm. and they recognize the same pattern. So they, the idea of police is to stop crime before it happens. It's called pre-crime. In 2006, this was science fiction. It was fiction. But today it is actually reality. And in certain societies like China, which is a centrally governed, it's not a democracy, right? So, and it's very huge market, lots of citizens. Um, Something like Sesame Credit is already in use for at least six years, where it started off as um, some kind of a score you get as a citizen score uh, to assess whether you are financially trustworthy or not. And this was based on other patterns. For example, banks, insurances, when they look at the data, they will find out that if you are surrounded by people, if your friends, 
never pay their bills, there's a very high chance that you will also, you're very bad at paying your bills. So because of this, even though there's no trace of that yet, this will cause a bank, for example, to refuse a loan Jesus. to you. So this, this system was already applied in, in China at least five years ago. Now, of course, they use this system and the backdoors that they have in their social media apps uh, to do other stuff like maybe you belong to a, religi a religious minority that they are not comfortable with um, and uh, they will know that you belong to this religious minority because you were physically with other people who are believers in, of this religion in something church-like for an hour and a half. And then this means that you will never get a government job. This means that your children will not be allowed to go to university. This also means sometimes that these people simply disappear. Um, but now they use the same system to fight the pandemic because they literally know when someone uh, was infected, who dispersed. They had contact tracing before it was cool. Which is a, a, a more positive aspect then. But the, the, the things you said about data collection and, and application then in mundane life and every application of life, that's so freaky. And I think that's only possible in an envir political environment as China, right? I don't think we should no. then, then project those. No. Um, there's, always, there's always this power and there's money. Uh, I think her name is Shoshana Rubioff. And she is interviewed in uh, The Social Dilemma as well. You can, it's the woman with the big hair. Yeah. And uh, her book, I recommend her book. It's called, um, uh, it's with capitalism in the title. Oh my God. Shoshana Capitalism, uh, we should we should. Google yeah, we it. can look it up and put yeah. it in the, uh, in the references. Um, whenever there, there's money to be made, if you, you can imagine that a bank or an insurance company is willing to pay for this type of analysis. Of course. Yeah. And artificial intelligence is the solution to the big data problem. Of course, any, any company, any private person can collect huge amounts of data, even on yourself. There are pe people who have been doing this for the last 20 years write down every meal that they ate so you can you can collect data on everything to get to know yourself better yeah yeah, yeah it was it's Basically. like a philosophy uh, uh, why why are some people wearing uh, a smartwatch uh, or a fitbit uh, bracelet they're feeding it with a lot of data about how they move what their heart rate is what their body temperature is there's a lot of sensors in here why do you do this? You say, yeah, to get to know myself better. And then now it's one step further. This thing nudges me into mm. being more active and breathing. <laughs> it reminds me to breathe and to slow down my heartbeat, uh, to meditate. But that's, that's nudging for a good cause, right? Yeah, in, in that case, artificial intelligence is very good at uh, working with large data sets, even if they're messy. Because it is better than human beings in... Uh, seeing the patterns in there. So if you have an AI that sees patterns, then after a while they can predict behavior from this. Uh, and that's interesting. It's a little creepy though. That smells a lot like pre-crime in Minority Report. 
And then there's a, a third phase, and, and that's where it makes even tech optimists like me nervous, is when it starts to make decisions based mm. on these predictions. Mm. Um, AI, for example, if you look at breast cancer research, so the more women um, who get, uh, who get their, their breast checked up uh, with a mammogram, uh, the, the better. So there's lots of data. But we have this type of mammograms for 10, 20 years now. So there's lots of pictures. And with some of them, we see how the story ends, how tumor develops and how it starts. You can look back. What did it look like? What type of spec was it? Where was it situated? How did it behave? Um, so you feed this to an AI. And this makes an AI so smart that it, it can actually pick out that particular spec, even though it's still very small, very soon in the process. Mm. So it just depends on in whose hands, who is the guardian of the data, and how are decisions based on the predictions that an AI can make based on patterns in the data. Yeah, there's lots of great applications of, of AI, right? The, the thing RoboVision did for, for COVID analysis as well. The uh, because we had Jonathan Berto on, on the podcast as well. He explained that they run COVID diagnosis um, with CT lung scans through a supercomputer in, in Germany then, I think. And for uh, to, to um, improve the quality of diagnostics, so not one zero, but on a dimension who needs inten intensive care or not. The same thing with um, uh, self-driving vehicles is also the way I think but that's even more complex because you have hundreds of street images that needs to be inputted before an, an, um, a car can recognize which turn he should take or at which sign he should stop. But uh, but the danger is in the in the bad applications. Right? Have you ever yeah. realized that whenever there is a or you uh, prove that you are not a robot spam filters? Yeah. And it always asks you where are the traffic lights, uh, where are the crossroads, where are that you're training an AI to do exactly that. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's ironic. So you say like the danger is in who is the guardian of of, of, of the, your data, of the data. And then I'm asking myself, yeah, uh, are there already decisions who are not made by human but by artificial intelligence right now? And if so, maybe you can give well, an example. What I just heard about the uh, lung... CT lung scans. Yeah. CT lung scans smelled a lot like triage to me. Just imagine that um, there's a, a third wave, even worse than the two before, and hospitals have to choose. In How can you expect from a doctor who is overworked very close to a burnout. He's been working nonstop for 48 hours to make this type of decisions. Who gets, who, who, who gets to be treated and who will have to wait in, in the hallway? Because I've, I've seen these images from the hospitals in, in Italy and that was literally the case um, where you could hear the beeps of people who were still attached to some kind of a breathing apparatus and then there was a corridor that was dark and you could hear no beeps. So in the history and since the modern history, as a human, we, we try to strive to the, the ultimate rational decision. So if you can 
prolong this, maybe you can say AI could be the decision maker as a human to maybe delete our empathy and make decisions rationally. So do you think that's a whole wrong vision to it? Or do you think it, it won't develop in that way? And why not? I'm not a big fan of the, of the idea that rational decisions are superior. There's always a dark side to, to, to everything. And there's always a light side, a bright side to everything. So whatever decision you make, even assuming that it's, we can make decisions, that we have free will, is uh maybe a crazy idea yeah because if you make if you let ai make a decision rationally it's always based on some variables that are put in by humans so maybe it's even not that rational the bad rap that ai gets is caused by the initial data sets and and the initial algorithms um, they were fed by by humans with their own biases. Um, and, and this is why sometimes you hear that facial recognition algorithms are very bad at recognizing people with a very dark skin. Uh, it's because the initial data set hardly had, hardly had, had any black people in it. Uh, so I, I think it's good that people talk about it, but, but the real reason why so many people get nervous when they hear about AI which is nothing but a, an umbrella term for a lot of things. Mm. Um, but the real reason they're nervous is that it's called intelligence and it's artificial. So there, there has to be something fake or um, with false, with bad intentions behind it. It's very uncomfortable for people to imagine an, an intelligence that does not have a physical body. So whenever there's a newspaper article about artificial intelligence, they will always pick these stock images of robots in movies like her or iRobot and and then there's another thing um, science fiction movies are basically western movies so there's always a good cowboy with white hat and the bad the bad one usually had the black hat and uh, as soon as robots were int introduced robots were almost always the bad guys because you could not read their intentions from their face no emotions yeah yeah they have an yeah they have a terminator type yeah. yes they have they cannot show emotions on their face and for humans that is really crucial is why we make eye contact is why we look at you are you smiling is it a genuine smile are you nervous body language all this a robot has an eternal poker face and this is why in science fiction they are often the bad guys because they do not betray their intentions through visual expression. Now, this doesn't help. If you always use pictures of bad guys in movies, robots, to accompany an article about AI, and then AI calling it artificial intelligence, it doesn't really help. Do you think there could be a better name for AI? Yeah, something with, call it agile or something like that, and then <laughs> everyone will want it, augment it. <laughs> Augmented optimization, something like that. Yeah. You mentioned the movie Her um, in, in the list of um, also iRobot and maybe Terminator. But I would say it's like not in that list because I think Her is very clever in the sense that 
it's more close to reality than all the other ones, right? The movie is, if, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a long time about a guy who falls in love with his voice control, advanced vo- voice control um, person, which is then a girl in the film, because she knows him better than anyone else in, yeah. in the... It's like, like if you have a smart refrigerator that knows you better than your husband or I don't know. Yeah, because uh, the smart refrigerator knows what you are like two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Hungry and bored, full of self-doubt. Um, a couple of years ago, I was invited by Microsoft to their headquarters in um, it's in Redmond, close to Seattle. And uh, they demonstrated a chatbot that they have for the Chinese market, and her name is uh, Xiao Ice. Xiao mm. is just girl's name, and Ice is cool, right? Mm-hmm. And there was one of their Chinese engineers um, who showed me how it worked for her. Um, so she is like a Facebook messenger, basically, but then on, I don't know what it was, WeChat or Weibo, I forgot. And uh, she is best friends with millions of people at the same time. And she demonstrated me uh, how she would chat with Xiao Weiss. And um, Xiao Weiss knew her so well that they had like these little names for each other. And she knew perfectly well how to make the engineer laugh. And I noticed that she forgot I was there. And then Xiao Weiss said something, I can't read Chinese. Um, so it was completely safe for her. But I noticed her reaction, Xiao Weiss said something. And then the reaction of the engineer was to try to hide the screen from me. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, so, and, and Perfect this... Perfect demonstration. It was, it, it was really a best friend. It's like her. Um, the algorithm gets to know you so well that it knows you better than you know yourself. Now, it gets better. Um, so, Xiao Wise is a 16-year-old girl. That's how she behaves. And she wrote a book of poetry. I have it at home. She wrote a book of poetry, and when you read it, it's tra- been translated into English, fortunately. It's not perfect poetry. It's clearly written by a very complex personality who is not not adult yet. So even grammatically, it's not perfect. But it's it's fascinating to hold this book in your hand, you know, because these poems were written by an AI, mm. by her. That's that's getting creepy, right? When once, if I hear about this chatbot, it seems that it's very advanced already. And and how how many how long ago was that? Your meeting with Microsoft? Two three years ago. Two, three, that's so. Assuming that today it's even more advanced, and today it's being rolled out in HR as well, right? And in businesses, uh, chatbots. Um, so it's it's getting more and more commoditized. Then I think as well. Then again. Siri activates herself with every operating system update. And I always have to manually deactivate her. And uh, she annoys me. I mean, the AI behind Siri must know so much about me and uh, and about people like me. And she's still so stupid. I mean, even, even simple questions. As long as you stick to the script and then Siri play... Street Spirit Fade Out by Radiohead, then she will play this song. But whenever you go off script and, and ask her something, Siri, uh, what's the weather going to be like uh, tomorrow in Antwerp? Which is a pretty basic question. 
she just you know i mean wow <laughs> and and does siri improve while you use it she she uh, i she annoys me too much for me to invest time in her and i think small children are better at that because when they talk to an ai they try to train it like you train a puppy mm. they accept i don't accept from a machine that cost me like a month's in <laughs> in worth income uh that it behaves like a, a stupid puppy mm. but a child is is more natural with that if you would give siri to a child um, you can see it with people who make the mistake to um, have a google dot echo or one of these amazon things uh, in their house and they they notice how the child starts talking to it and how it responds and the child is training it so a child is less skeptic towards yes. new technology yes so julius was mentioning that it's kind of getting creepy because poetry music theater everything that's so that reaches us in, inside our heart it's very you feel threatened yeah you feel threatened in it's getting essence, emotional as well it's getting emotional emotional as well but my question then is why does it feel that that threatening because maybe naturally it's not so threatening if, if a child is not scared from because it doesn't have a face i think it would be easier um if if um if we could stop thinking uh of intelligence as having to have a body intelligence doesn't really have to have a body um, no. so there's two types of, of science fiction nerds there's star wars which is for kids and then there's star trek and um the 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 good thing about watching so many um so many tv series like star trek or star wars is that it's easier to accept that intelligence is something that might just be part of i mean some kind of web that connects the whole universe together why not have you seen the episode of black mirror um white christmas yes because that's an example of of a technology which which has in the face so maybe and it, for me it was also very uh, it was a very scary episode and it's it's a pattern in black mirror that everything is so everyone is so skeptic about the future and i'm wondering if that was always the case in, in history that humans are so skeptic yes of course there have always been luddites um the luddites were the ones who would boycott or destroy machines in the first wave of industrialism um because the the devil was in the machine it was not normal that it could weave so fast much faster than a human being plus it was taking away the jobs mm. of people who were weaving from home um even even before that even in mythology greek mythology there are stories about some type of people would call it a robot right now um that was invincible because you could shoot arrows at it and it didn't get hurt there's stories like that like from ages ago and then some hero finds out that it has one weak spot yeah but th those are imaginary th threats maybe now myths myths are very important they are based on if it's a myth it means that for thousands of years people have made the effort to tell the story again and again yeah, yeah of course it's also what uh, jordan peterson talks a lot about, mm. about oh my god yeah. the j word fell 
Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, but is that positive or not? <laughs> He's a fascinating man. I've binge-watched all of his lectures. By the way, his personality lectures were the foundation of the theory behind Cambridge Analytica. Hmm. Well, we had him the last week on the podcast. The six traits of personality, they were actually his... And uh, then this mythology and Bible uh, series is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I saw them as well. Yeah. But and, and he's clearly a very intelligent person, uh, an extremely proficient uh, professor. I mean, even just putting his lectures online, there's a lot of professors who do that. But he actually has you watch a guy on stage. Yeah. L- let's let's take him as an example of intelligence, which is attractive to a certain point. Um, Yes, I but, think then, it is. but then he fell I in love with his own ideas. And and when someone falls in love with their own ideas, this, this is what he, how he defines a tyranny, is uh, when a government falls in love with their own ideas. And then as soon as he hit like 2 million views uh, or subscribers to his YouTube channel, he fell in love with his own ideas. and uh, And then he was asked by media about all sorts of topics in Canadian politics and other stuff that he's not an expert in. He's just mm. a guy who grew an ac- from an academic background, really. A lot of his frustrations are really academic. I mean, who cares about postmodernism anymore? It was still a thing with old professor when I was at university back in the 90s. So that's how how old it is to get all worked up about postmodernism, let alone Marxism, Jesus. So he's, he's got his own context as, as a guy with yes. the 50s of the, the last century as the ideal of how households should work. Uh, so he's just, he's human, he's got his own context. And then this own context also got broadcasted to an audience that was very eager to hear stuff like that, like, you know, Everything that is going to be hear, yeah. that needed to hear um, a young male white audience who were clueless about their identity because uh, Professor Peterson grew up in a time where it was very simple to be a man. Uh, there had just been a, a Second World War, and, and after that, everyone was just happy that there were still some men left um to start a family and and these Plus men religion also religion so everything there was a structure that basically from the day you were born yeah but that's that's also how he started his book that by admitting admitting this but okay let, maybe you leave jordan peterson uh, behind no, uh, I, I just wanted to to tell about him that i think what makes him attractive is um the fact that besides his um he, he has a, a, a He's very intelligent and it's very rational, his what he says, but it's also a lot of emotion involved in it, in his lectures. And he always touches on that emotional part. And I think as long as AI, coming back to intelligence, doesn't reflect that emotion part, it has no face, even if you give it a face. So if you mean by having a face, having emotion, then yes, that's why AI will always be scary. Um, because right now it cannot touch on the part that makes us human the the part that is so abstract that you cannot put value on it the part that makes putting a banana on the wall with duct tape one value it one one hundred thousand euros some things we can cannot explain but the banality which we give beauty to i think yeah it's interesting because there's uh there's there are ais that create art and um, a couple of years ago 
one of these AIs was fed with um, ten thousands of classic portraits paintings, and and used this these data to create it, its own. And then one of these paintings uh, was sold by Christie's for ten thousand dollars, and it's it's the person who bought this. You might say, are you are you nuts? Uh, because it's not signed by a person. It's not signed by something that has, that governs itself. It's just, you know, it's just an algorithm. It's, it's software running on lots of data. So it, there's not an identity behind it. So who owns the painting and who actually, what are you paying for? And then they say, no, that's not it. It's an investment. Mm. Yeah, and also it's, the theory that it's not important to know the meaning of art, to yes. know the meaning of a painting. It, it just has to make you stop and wonder. Yes, it's as in the eye of the beholder. That, it just to yank you out of your routine, of your context, and makes you wonder about things. That is what art is trying to do. And that's also what Jordan Peterson did. He really changed my mind about Bible stories, but because I grew up in, in the Flemish country, Oost Vlaanderen, in the 70s, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so I was dragged to church every Sunday morning and uh, it was so boring for a child to sit there uh, in, in, that, in that building, which was very often very cold as where, well. Where in East Flanders, by the way? Hama. Hama, okay. Yeah. The most famous, the most famous citizen of Hama is Herman Brusselmans. He was born there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And kind of, you know explains everything lots of cows mm -hmm. yeah but yeah as a child in churches that was i started to hate it and then i was sent to to uh, st vincentius institute and the, w the way i pronounce it says everything what it was like in the 80s to be sent there as a teenager it was it was run by nuns and nuns are the most vicious beings on this planet I mean, there is no animal more vicious than nuns are. And I'm sure there are exceptions. Yeah. But these nuns were old and bitter. And when they were confronted every day with young girls who were growing up in the 80s, you know that the atomic bomb could drop any, any moment. Chernobyl was happening. The Pope got shot. U.S. President got shot. There was Thatcher... In the UK, I mean, music was very interesting back in the days. So that, that was your context. And then you were sent to this institute where they would nip every, every initiative that, that only smelled like creativity. They would nip it in the bud because you were there to be trained to become a doctor's wife. Uh, that was it was like for me. Mm. I'm sure that lots of girls there had a really good time, but I definitely, I did not. I did not. Mm. So I spent my years in this institute as a, not as a rebel because that would have been too easy. There were many rules, so I was not I was not going to break those rules. That would have made it very easy for them to uh, expel me or to punish me. Thank you. I never got expelled, and usually I had very good grades as well, which made them even angrier. One one time I decided to publish a school magazine when I was 16, 17. 
and uh, I just walked around, tried to find out who could write, who could draw, who took pictures, and and then I would fill the pages with it. I had a you know a typewriter at home, and then I would glue together the pages, and then there was a, a machine as big as a van somewhere in the basement that could make photocopies. And uh, I was really proud of it. And then I went from classroom to classroom to sell it. And uh, one, um, and I was called by the uh, the principal. He was using an intercom system. Everybody knew that he could meticulously decide who would hear his message. He also knew exactly who was where and when. Isn't that what fa what Facebook is doing right now? Yeah, and he could also listen to every classroom. He would, the, the teachers knew that he was listening in. Now, he chose to broadcast over the whole school that he wanted to see me in the office immediately. Now, I've spent seven miserable years in this institute, and they were miserable for me, but they were also miserable for the institute because I was a thorn in their side, you know? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Never in those seven years had I heard him summon a pupil to his office. So this was special. Yeah. And uh, I was called to his office because I had printed a picture in the magazine that was taken by a student. And I had taken the effort to, um, it's not digital, it's pixelating it so that it looked better when you photocopied it. And he said it was below the status of this school to print a picture that a student took of people skiing down some slope in Austria uh, to put that in a magazine. That's what he was, you know, calling me for. It Just to give you an idea. Yeah, it's mind-blowing to me that, that such conservatism is still existed not that long ago. And not that long ago, no. And how much things have changed from one generation until the other. Yes. Can you imagine that I... I went to university in Antwerp and um, it was, you know, it was possible to travel every day from Hama to Antwerp by bus or by train, but it was a bit of a hassle. And now my grandmother had a niece who lived in the big city and uh, she would rent out rooms to students. So I was allowed to uh, have my own students den in Antwerp. And I ended up at uh, UFSIA back in the days. It was still UFSIA. And that was just a lifesaver for me. I mean, Antwerp, I fell in love immediately. There's so many aspects of Antwerp. Um, and and with the context. And you might say, Ufsia, they're Catholics. I mean, they were Jesuits. And these Jesuits were still there. I mean, uh, they were still there. They were old, but they were still there. So you might imagine that this was just more of the same to me, but it wasn't. It, The Jesuits have this weird idea that I didn't know back then, but every year you pick out like one or two students and you nudge them into doing more. So they, I, I would get involved in publi publishing the students' magazine, um, being a student representative. Uh, I ended up being a president of the students' organization. And only when I look back and read about the Jesuits, I realized what they had done and why they did it. But for me, it was like a, a world that opened itself to me after mm. being held back. To my, that was my, mm, mm. my feeling. I was a very angry child, very frustrated. 
I was never allowed to do anything. Mm, mm. And then I ended up in Antwerp in the hands of the Jesuits. And uh, that was a, a better good thing approach. For me. Yeah. Yeah, their approach because worked for me. What they their approach what it was is basically uh, trying to spot the um, so-called high potentials i don't know to put it in business terms yeah and to develop them plus the courses actually interested me they were yeah. about literature and grammar and um do you remember ladnot and hospi so the speech to text technology the big bubble over here well the first people in belgium who were working on this technology they were not programmers they were linguists um, a lot wh of them. What is that technology? I don't know what. Speech to text. Yeah. What? I mean, what's in every smartphone right yeah. now? Okay. But it was uh, Belgium was for a, a short fleeting moment in time. Belgium was ahead yeah. of the world. And the people who worked there had studied the same thing as I had because, if you think about it, grammar is is code for language. Uh, language in itself is code to represent something, to make something happen. So if you know how exactly the machine behind the language works, the history, the grammar and the art, then it's not that hard to start working in IT, actually. It's not that crazy. So mm -hmm. for me, the, this combination of very nerdy stuff um, and art and how they meet in language, that for me was a revelation. And that's why you made the shift from uh, your more linguistic studies to what is for you then a, in in essence, in the fundaments of the different disciplines, a smooth transition then to IT because it's all about coding. And if we talk about um, how is it called the discipline of of Bart Preneel, do you remember um, cryptography. Crypto cryptography, which is also tightly linked to IT and and to and and to hacking uh, to to put it that way, and what is crypto cryptography basically? Then trying to hide what you write, and in the most ancient times, once language was invented, there was al also ways invented in which your language couldn't be identified by others, which then links to and and it, yeah, if you if you look back to the fundamentals, maybe it all sprouts out from language and then. The fascinating personality in, in this aspect is uh, Vitalik Buterin. I'm not a coder, by the way. I just enjoy working with uh, IT people mm. because um, I I was never the type of girl that had to use her looks or liked using her looks. I just didn't care, really. Uh, I dressed in black and that that was about it. Never gave it a thought. And um, I, I had spent some time, my first job, I wanted to become a journalist, obviously. That was a very, it's not the easiest way to make money, to pay the rent. And eventually I ended up in the TV industry. So what is now called Fear was back then VTV, was like a pirate radio, but for TV, it just opened up so many things and... and they really needed creative people who could write to do the research for TV programs and write uh, the scripts and then also be involved in, in the live recordings of very exciting times. Um, but back then, uh, it was work hard, party hard. I remember the kick that you would get, this feeling when you could hear the floor manager go three, two, 
buff. And Poor then, life. And yeah. then afterwards, they told you, yeah, about 1.2 million people watched your program. Uh, and and that's something that's a type of reach I've never had before nor after. Um, I worked with people like Hudo Lelikis, who is phenomenal, um, and other TV personalities. So for me, it was very exciting because I could do a lot, like from research up until helping with the live uh, live recording. And then afterwards, you were completely burnt out. It was because you did two recordings. Uh, one after the other one was really live and the other was a fake life and then you were just tired and everyone was there the artists were still there and then it was party time and and yeah wow work hard party hard but after a while i noticed that when you talk you you keep seeing the same faces in the crew mm-hmm. and you get to know them a little and then after a while i noticed that none of these people was still was in a steady relationship mm. because of this lifestyle um it, it, i made lots of money but i also worked from eight o'clock in the morning and i only got home at like midnight mm. three days a week um and i had my first child back then um he's now 24 and uh and i thought i can't i mean this is this is just i have to find something else i i can't work combined yeah i can't be there at eight o'clock and and only come home by midnight so one of the people who would warm up the audience was starting a crazy idea this was 19 i think 99 i'm just thinking because i like many old people i think in terms of that that's when my first child was born so that was in 96 so in 99 i had a, a second baby by then um so one of the guys I knew was starting a rap radio station. Okay. Yeah, I like the idea. Again, I had this feeling like with VTV, it's like a pirate radio, really. And um, we we ran it is in it the... Is it like only rap music or no, uh, how no, does it work? No, Freestyle? No, no, or no, no, no. No rap music in Belgium in 1999? No, no, it was electronic dance music. But you said rap radio station? Pirate. Oh, pirate. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So we worked in Brussels in the basement of a young company called Skynet, full of, you know, back in the days you could buy a network magazine and it would have CD-ROMs or discs blistered, packaged with the magazine and this would give you like one month of free internet or all sorts of software that you would install without giving it a thought. And um, while we were there in the basement, so no ventilation, no windows, um, carpets all around, full of servers and other machines. Um, and and the, this young company, Skynet, got bought up by another company called Belgaco. Mm. And uh, this meant that these young guys who were manning the help desk, and all of them were smokers, heavy smokers, and so was I. Um, they would come down during their break and complain to us about how everything was ruined now that they were bought up by one of the largest companies in Belgium. And uh, and I was there. I didn't know anything about internet and websites. And they taught me how to do how to make tables in HTML stuff like that mm. uh, in between their breaks. Uh, and that's that's how I learned. And then this, the servers was running on the crappiest server software 
ever, which was NT4 by Microsoft, it would literally crash very if you just coughed at it. But Microsoft itself was just down the road. And with a lot of smokers, a lot of coughing, so that wasn't, that didn't that wasn't help. practical. Yeah, that didn't help. <laughs> uh, at, at a certain point in time, I stopped smoking because it was bad for the machines. <laughs> um, no, the smoking started because if you had completed a job, like creating a web page, then you had to upload it, and that took ages. In, not, not there, not in the basement of Skynet, we didn't, because we were sitting literally on the backbone of Belgium. That was the fastest internet I've ever had in the basement of Skynet, I can tell you. Ooh. But usually when you work from home uh, back in the days, um, you had like, yeah, it was nothing compared to what we have now. It was, it was narrow band, basically. So you had to upload your page of whatever you had been doing and you had to wait. Or you were downloading something and you had to wait. Or you wanted to print something and then you had to wait again. So to kind of congratulate yourself on completing this task, you would light a cigarette while you were waiting. And before I knew it, I would have an ashtray on, on the left-hand side of my keyboard and, and a mouse and a mouse pad on the right-hand side. And that's how I worked. But eventually I had to stop because it was bad for the machines. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's how I rolled into it, through a web yeah, radio. Yeah. No business model whatsoever. Yeah. Around the year 2000, you didn't need a business model. You just needed an idea. There was, if you needed money, you would just yell to the skies and then some rich guy would invest money in it without even asking, well, actually, how are you going to make money? We don't know. And it worked. It worked. Um, we had a live stream and uh, we had six on-demand uh, radio programs uh, with, uh, you know, hosts, DJs that would come over. One was about electronic dance music. Another one was about culture events. Uh, another one was about gaming, where the guys from the help desk of Skynet were a big help. Mm. And uh, I would do the research, write the scripts, and then one of the hosts would come over and, and read them. You we, had had a, we had a pretty large community, a newsletter, yeah. portal website. Yeah, It was fun. You have a very unusual career path, if, if I must say. Yeah, but it's the thing that makes so many people uh, nervous about internet and, and digital technology is that it reinvents itself every six months. Um, that is what keeps it interesting for me, because I, I have the feeling of what I learned in TV or what I learned from linguistics, uh, what I learned from this web radio station. Um, I can always take it with me to whatever I'm doing. The fact that I write books now would not be possible if I hadn't studied to be a linguist and trained to, to write in English. Um, so to me, there, were, there was hardly ever a time where I had the feeling that I was doing something that was not somehow helped me to get more out of, I mean, you only have one lifetime, one crazy life, what, one wild life. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't always like that, but that's the main idea. Mm -hmm. I'm 50 years old now, and uh, I still enjoy what I'm doing. And the, I, I was a bit scared of getting old as a woman um, because it comes with its own territory of, you know, ailments. Um, but then again, it gives you a freedom that my, my, both of my children are adults right now they're healthy um, they don't have a criminal record they still like me um, so check <laughs> um, I I bought a very small house 
and I paid off the loan. So I'm basically I'm financially independent right now. And I have a job I really like at uh, Karl de Grote Hogeschool, which is one day a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some guest lectures here and there. So uh, I feel free. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's what you want, I guess. That's what what you yeah, want. Yeah. yeah. What else is there? And but since you you've been like everywhere, but there has been like a red wire. If I if I hear everything, um, has that been like your guide through this journey? Because what people might make up of of this um, very um, differentiating career path is like there must have been a lot of uncertainties and and like uh, did you have to make a lot of hard choices during that way or was it all like lined out for you and was like okay I just follow my intuition or what was the attitude you had during if you see pictures of me as a three-year-old you see a very angry frustrated child Um, and I I grew up in an environment where if 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 you would if you would look if if you would look at a, a small child being treated like that the way I was you would call social services or the police it was very violent my upbringing and I was and this is the teenager I was never allowed to do anything, anything. I was being punished the whole time so being smart for me was how to avoid punishment and uh, this is this is who I really am. I never ever want to do something I don't want to. This mm. is my idea of freedom. Mm. So, and looking back, I never have. Mm. And those are the hard choices that I make, um, which is why I don't call it a career. If you would ask me what do you want to be when you grow up, as a small child, I, when I was eight, I would say I want to become an. an an airplane. I wanna. I wanna be a hostess for an airline, and then I remember that the adults were laughing at me because of a very cliche answer. Really, for a girl, it's like saying that you wanna be a firefighter when you're a boy. Mm. But then eventually, I've worked for three years for Virgin Express, which is an airline, and uh, as their webmaster, and, uh, and that's where I learned all about e-commerce mm-hmm. because what they were selling was tickets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like I said, interesting career path. And then right now, you're, uh, you kind of, I uh, because I read your your website right, and which listed your uh, specialities. Yeah. Uh, but on your LinkedIn, it says digital marketing. Uh, like th- there were three patterns with digital yeah. in, in front of my, them my each, each time. On, on yeah. LinkedIn says, um, I'm here to teach and learn about uh, digital. I'm not sure about the right order, digital marketing, digital culture, and digital business. Yeah, yeah, okay. A lot of digital and also marketing I hear there. Yeah. And I want to like dive into the the marketing business, right? And the what's, what's hot, what's new in marketing right now? Because we all, um, thanks to the, the Mad Men uh, uh, series, we all have this, this really creative and like... Um, yeah, you have accounts and then, then you think of ideas for them. Is that still the the image today? It's more digitalized, but um, yeah, what's marketing like? Give us a feeling of, of the business. Well, one of the weird things about pandemic is that it forced digital transformation uh, in, in any industry, including advertising. 
Um, this trend had been going on for a while, but a lot of ad agencies were fighting against it because digital marketing has one upside and one downside. The upside is that everything can be measured and the downside is that everything can be measured. Mm. So in, in Madman era, you could come up with two brilliant campaigns a year and then with an, billboards outside advertising and you could you could tell your customer, your client, that 150,000 people had an opportunity to see that billboard. There yeah. was no way to check these numbers. With a banner campaign, you can see how how f how few people actually click on this banner. Banner click through rates are like 0.02%. And and of course that's yeah, then marketing directors want return on investment. They spend 200,000 euros a year on advertising and the first budget that's being put on the block when times are tight is the marketing budget, especially the advertising budget. So even the CEO would ask, what's the return on investment of your advertising budget? And uh, and now when they when they went for digital, you could see that there was very little return of investment of awareness campaigns through bannering, for example. So um, what I'm looking right now, because I, I could come up with cliches like customer centricity and, and uh, yeah. what, I, what I'm looking at right now is again China. Um, since 2014, 2015, they've had their flavor of uh, social media influencers. And uh, on their equivalent of Facebook or or Instagram platforms like Weibo, for example, uh, they call them key opinion leaders. And these uh, people were already selling stuff online in 2016. They would they would start on Taobao, for example, which is like Shopify. Um, a marketplace basically they would they would sell stuff there would be like an instagram like picture where they would pose with with particular type of hats or clothing or shoes and these were clickable and then when you would click on them you could buy these shoes this is how these influencers were making money back then and still are so what i'm looking at today and this is going to happen within the next six months is uh, social media influencers selling stuff uh, through live streams. It's a combination of everything, really. And technically, it's possible. Um, you c even if you only have like a Facebook account, which is the bare minimum, you can do a Facebook Live and sell stuff. Uh, it will look a lot like these TV programs that you would have during daytime, where they would sell air fryers and weird gadgets yeah, that you yeah. never asked for. These bad acting commercials. Yeah, during you can the do year. that with your own Facebook account. But um, all the way, the technology is already here. Uh, you can use Instagram shoppable ads and um, and have a Facebook shop linked to that with your catalog inside Facebook and, and the whole payment, all the whole everything uh, runs on, on Facebook platforms. So this is happening. And then only last week or the week before, TikTok made a deal with uh, Shopify. So you can link your TikTok account, business account, uh, with your Shopify account. And then you can run shoppable ads on the TikTok platform. So if you're selling sneakers, you better have this type of shoppable ads on TikTok because there's the audience. 
that buy sneakers. This clutters your newsfeed. This yeah, and th that's yeah, that, yeah. that's the experience is gone. Uh, TikTok, I I think it's it's highly addictive because it's combination of good design and good algorithm, but um, it's creative. It's really creative. And it's a new generation of performance artists. Yeah, it's amazing. Sometimes, and, and using sometimes the it's too the much. But yeah. as as their as their stage really and and trying out stuff. This is a. They are now. Everyone seems 15 years old when I watch TikTok from behind my ass, but this was like a normal woman would. Um, and uh, they, they are trying out how can I entertain an, entertain an audience with uh, something visual that I create myself, uh, a little movie clip of, say, 15 seconds. And they do this all by themselves. They record with their smartphone, they edit, they put on special effects. Uh, the algorithm picks the music for them or they start, they pick the music and then create something that goes with it, like lip syncing. Um, I also like the creativity of how they play with the limitations of the platform, the fact mm. that it's vertical. And uh, one, of, one of, to be honest, um, you see a lot of overflow of TikTok content on other social media platforms. And when you're watching TikTok videos on YouTube and someone does the effort to put three of these next to each other, it's just, automatically fits perfectly in this horizontal frame that YouTube uses. And to me, that's visually is very attractive. Mm. Um, so for our own, for our very eyes, we can see a whole new generation of performing artists um, trying out stuff. And within the next three or four years, they are the next superstars, obviously. Yeah. The ones who make it. Yeah. yeah. And they will sell stuff. So it's also being an influencer, but they are the shop. I mean, they sell. They're not being sponsored. It's their stuff mm. that they're selling. So they can even take this creativity to a whole new level. Like Kanye West basically yeah. has, its, uh, has his own sneakers. Now any TikToker can do the same theoretically okay. because they are in direct contact yeah. with their audience. So they can test out different versions of whatever they're trying to sell and then see what sticks and only then produce it. This is something that a classic artist is, that's very hard for a classic artist because they need to focus on their thing and they're not always constantly in contact with their audience. Does this mean it's like the end for big institutions, companies like Nike? It's I think it's the end of the big middleman. Um, Make no mistake, if you look at the record industry, the very tough industry, um, when Napster when Napster was created, it, it almost killed the record industry. And now they're making more money than ever, than ever. They're making more money than they made with, with vinyl and CDs per year now through Spotify. Hmm. They're literally making millions hmm. every year thanks to Spotify. Mm. And that's something I hadn't expected that. Artists realize that they, musical artists, for them, ending up in someone's playlist on Spotify is the most important marketing platform that they need. I mean, I, I watched Top Up and other programs come down on TV and MTV, which was big change. Um, and as a, as a musical artist, you had to be featured on MTV. They had to play your song 
like they used to on, on the radio, right? And now this this platform is now Spotify. And that's, I, I'd never seen it coming. Mm. Hadn't expected that. Mm. It's like a whole trend of cutting the middleman. Cutting like the middleman, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Making it more efficient and making it, you, you come closer to the client. And that's what customer, the, like, the mission that often big companies have, also smaller ones, to be customer centric. That's essentially what the uh, the um, ambition is then to be more close to the customers and to give more agency in the companies to the people who are the closest. Like the model of of Colred is really interesting because uh, try to to um, to tell in a delaze that your wine is sour in contrast to Colred, and you get a way harder time to to have someone to answer you in the Colred, in the delaze in contrast to Colred because the whole business model of uh, or the the organizational chart of Colored is designed in the way that everyone on the top gives as much as as much agency as possible to the people in the store because they are the closest to the customer they can create the value and i think that's something businesses have to evolve to in in the in the near future to well, that's one of the bigger trends that I'm watching closely right now is the end of globalization and the return to the grocery store, the corner shop, um, either in my mentality or literally, where um, whoever is behind the counter selling you something knows who you are when you come back often and they know what you like. And then sometimes they give you a little extra. Hmm. That's, uh, I think that's, that's good news. Because with the internet, all of a sudden, the world was your oyster, your marketplace. Um, you could have a, a global audience, but actually that's very hard because delivery, shipping, different legal situations. Um, that was, I remember the first time I ordered a t-shirt that came all the way from Australia. And I, I just, I, I was pinching, I'm still pinching my arm, you know, that was, to me, that was just unbelievable. Um, uh, but now I'm not so sure anymore. If you are, if you have a web shop and you have a, you had a web shop because you wanted to address a global audience, this is a very tough act um, because you're competing against uh, Alibaba and Wish and, and other players that are a lot better organized than you and that have uh, higher negotiating powers, so they will always be cheaper. Um, so the only way out of this is to um, fall back to something that comes a lot closer to the corner shop or the grocery store instead of wanting to be a global player. Mm -hmm. That and the fact that whenever you order something uh, from across the pond, then you always get this mystery tax from FedEx. You could order something from Hong Kong that costs 20 euros and then get an invoice from FedEx for 25 euros and you don't, you never know. You never know. Will they catch it? Will they not catch it? They just send you like a bad photocopy of something like an invoice and it doesn't even mention what product it is for. And then you say, oh, whatever must be a mistake. And then one week after they already start to th threaten with legal actions if you don't pay immediately and then they start calling you that's that's a weird that's a rabbit hole i don't want to fall into that and and because of that i don't order online anymore mm. with 
global players like Amazon.com or whatever web shop on the other side of the planet. Mm. Plus, I already have enough stuff. Yeah. Do you think a lot of people did change their minds during the coronavirus? I can't be the only one who gets these surprise uh, invoices from FedEx. I mean, it can happen once to you. And even even the, our local authorities sometimes will just randomly slap on some extra import tax, something like that. You never know whether it will hit you or not. But once it's like, yeah, a nasty surprise. Twice it's like, what? And then the third time you say, I'm never going to order something from outside of the European Union again. And then we eat Granny Smiths in February from New Zealand. That's another thing. Um, I've I've stopped doing that too, with the exception of bananas. I could never. I I yeah. eat lots of fruits in the morning. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm so, I'm full of good intentions. Mm -hmm. It starts to fade by noon, and then when the evening falls, I'm eating lace pickles and finishing a bottle on my own of someone but in the morning I'm full of good intentions and I eat lots of fruit and nuts and, and yogurts and uh, dried seeds stuff like that green tea with ginger and uh, and bananas are like the best but the chiquita the ones or no 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 fair trade bananas mm, of okay, course okay. yes of <laughs> course um, but I, I I go with the seasons for my vegetables and my fruit. So you pay a lot of attention to local buying to... I do, yeah. yes. Um, with one exception. Yeah. And um, I this is hard sometimes because I, lock, I really love almond nuts and avocados as well. Um, so, but I've, I try, I fail sometimes because, you know, I am a weak human being. I'm weak. Um, but I realize that buying almond nuts is bad and buying avocados is bad. I must say I have zero awareness on that part. I um, I must be more aware, I know, but uh, when I buy something, I, I, like, I look which apples I buy and that it's not uh, Pink Lady, for example, or bananas. But if you say almonds, I didn't know that. If you say... Oh, almonds, yeah. like uh, the... the they they will drain California, for example, of of most of its water, um, mm. and and they already have a serious shortage of uh, water. It's kind of um, if if you yeah if you grow almond trees, um, it takes a lot of water mm. to have a lot of almonds. But um, the thing about being locked up at home now again with the lockdown is that I know I always had this when the kids were little I. When kids get sick, it's almost, as a mother, you almost automatically feel it's your fault. There must be something that you've done wrong. Um, not feeding them healthily enough. And they should, it's the mother's responsibility in my head, of course, only in my head that they should have fresh vegetables and fruit every day and fresh food every day. Um, because if they get fat or sick, it's the mother's fault. Again, in my head. But that's how being a mother drives you crazy, you know. It's very stressful. Mm. Uh, so as soon as, as they were adults, I was relieved that I didn't have to come home from work and, you know, peel potatoes and prepare the vegetables, etc. But I kept doing it anyway. 
but only when I feel like it, which is more and more lately, especially with the winter coming. Um, I actually pay attention and I enjoy cooking. I even bake bread now and soup. And I made a pretty good lasagna yesterday. So, Congrats. Yeah. Yes, mindful yeah, I, cooking. I already uh, I also ate lasagna today. From my, uh, which was baked for my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a keeper, your girlfriend. Yeah, of course, it's a big keeper. You did the dishes then, yeah. to balance it no, out. Oh, it's still, uh, they are still there. <laughs> but it was uh, back at home. That's a missed opportunity. That's a missed opportunity. But so I hear you are very, you are occupied with uh, all kind of innov innovative things, but you still keep, um, you still try to buy local and you're really connected to your local environment as well so i was wondering your friends or your social network is also still in where you live or is no it? no so after spending like 20 years on the internet i still react pretty vehemently when someone says that those are just online friendships as if you can feel more connected to someone who only knows you from playing games together um, my son is a serious gamer and i know that whenever you should feel bad it's his gamer friends who will notice first um, and um, to me there's another thing so i used to work in for an investment bank for three years you, you worked for every, everything, <laughs> everything. everything. <laughs> yeah yeah every sector basically. Well, except for bank. pharmaceutics i don't think i've worked for pharmaceutics uh, bucket list Bucket list, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was very interesting because I, I was uh, allowed to work with extremely smart people, um, especially the legal team, because uh, banks will hire more legal persons year by year. I mean, uh, if you have a legal background, financial industry is waiting for you. Let's go meet us. Yeah, apply, you'll never be without now. a job. But it was also, yeah, it kind of there there were some other people who worked there who would just drain my soul <laughs> and uh um i tried to balance this out with volunteering and i've been volunteering for uh, a belgian a flemish organization called exchange um that used to send out experts to the other side of the planet where you would it started off with me teaching social media and then later on digital marketing to local entrepreneurs in Namibia or Malawi or South Africa or in the lower part of Africa. And uh, for me, it was a, an excellent opportunity to test out certain ideas that I had and models that I had on how you can use social media to promote your own local business. And uh, the, the, the projects I ended up with were very often government funded, government like Namibia government, for example and focused on local entrepreneurs, f female entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, sustainable. And, uh, and that was just, uh, if I hadn't done this type of work, I think I would have become cynical mm. or some type of female shark. Uh, I would have been richer maybe, but for me, this balanced things out. And these people, I'm still, I use Facebook to stay in touch with them. And it's amazing. I, I, that was during the first lockdown, I think, when we were all going collectively nuts, um, especially because we didn't know what the future would bring. Now it's a second lockdown. We already know what it's mm. like. 
and we know that the whole situation will last for at least a year or so. I'm not saying we're getting used to it, but at least we're not surprised anymore. Yeah, yeah there, there is now a new kind of lockdown. Do you have like a last message for our audience? Well, I would, I would maybe to to help in that last message. I was really interested as well in um, online personal marketing mm-hmm. for students more specifically, yeah. and then I think to LinkedIn. Uh, how important is it to, or or maybe any social media, to market yourself uh, when you're a student towards future yeah. job opportunities? And should you? Because oftentimes people feel like it's not authentic and uh, like they have to fake, um, like or they they don't they have no experience. How how the hell should you post something on social media that could be interesting for anyone, especially especially on LinkedIn? So, should we gain more confidence on that part? Is it relevant? What's what are your yes, thoughts on LinkedIn it? LinkedIn is interesting because if you do only one thing in social media, um, in in terms of completing your profile, uh, let it be LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the only social media profile where you have full control. Um, people cannot come over and write things on your wall. People cannot tag you in pictures. Um, it's it's But it's a lot more than just uploading your CV. LinkedIn wants to be whatever Facebook is successful at. And uh, right now, LinkedIn also wants you to share updates. And just like Facebook... Uh, they don't want it to be a link outside of the platform. They want it to be a picture you took yourself. They want it to be a, a video, maximum 10 minutes of yourself. Um, they want you to write, you know, thoughts. And LinkedIn is a little, is a lot more clumsy than Facebook. F- Facebook is a lot more sophisticated in this. But Facebook has more, has a larger footprint, a lot more users to experiment with than LinkedIn has. But now that it's property of Microsoft, things could become interesting is that your professional identity is LinkedIn because your name will be Googled and just pray to God that it's your LinkedIn profile that pops up. Mm. And maybe the fact that you played in a football team 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and and that is what uh, future employers are looking for. If you want to do an internship, your name will be Googled. Mm. And, uh, to be honest, you don't want it to be your Instagram profile or some. That's not that that it says something about the phase you were going through when you were 20, but it doesn't say anything to your employer. And I don't believe in this distinction between professional and personal. Okay. For example, I use I use uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Also, never do more than three because nobody has time to do more than three. So the mix depends on what you want to do. I'm still in love with Twitter, although I, I think it's still doesn't really have a business model. So it could just go away any minute because they're burning millions of money every month because yeah. they don't have advertising income and they don't really have a business model. Yeah. But thanks to Trump, they're still around. But I am active on Twitter because this is where nerds were in 2007. Um, it was created for them as a back channel and they're still there. Um, and I'm still there because journalists use it as a search engine. That's it. So, and Facebook is a profile because I'm too lazy to maintain two different profiles or a profile and a page. And I will never become that famous that I reach the limit of 5,000 contacts on, on Facebook. So it's fine. I can still do what I want to do on Facebook. I can do Facebook Lives, which I'm a big fan of. Um, 
even though even when I look like potato, I have learned <laughs> a lot about camera angles and lighting and combing your hair, uh, stuff like that. Um, and I do as much Facebook lives as possible for the stuff. When I try to sell something, I will use Facebook live. It's, uh, I've worked for a streaming media company in 2004 and it was from a technical point of view, it was not that easy to compress video in real time and upload it to a server and then have other people download it. But Facebook is so good at this. Um, wherever you are, and you're blessed in this country with Proximus and Telenet everywhere you go. So you can always do a Facebook Live from your smartphone anywhere. So um, Facebook and then LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where the people with money are. And if someone has to sponsor your project or invest in it um, or hire you, uh, HR people, um, CEOs, CMOs, IT people, um, they are all on LinkedIn and they're using LinkedIn daily now because this is a feed copied from Facebook, but it's a feed that is free of fake news and puppies and other people's Especially babies puppies, yeah. and other people's babies. Yeah. Because whatever you post on LinkedIn and LinkedIn is really trying to push you um, to post stuff on LinkedIn, it'll send you emails and alerts and say something may have some said something about you or you may be mentioned uh, somewhere. So keep going back to the platform. And uh, people realize that whatever they're sharing on LinkedIn is linked to their professional identity. Uh, so they're very serious about it. So do you have a final message for our listeners who are... Um predominantly students uh, to sum up everything we discussed about uh, from privacy um, until yeah it's it's hard to remember even what we discussed a lot of topics we covered also career also career paths is there something you would like one billboard sign message you would like to give to our listeners um, to sum up this talk well whether you're going on a date applying for an internship or maybe your first job your name will be googled so, and you can just hope and pray that it's your LinkedIn profile that comes up first. Uh, if you do only one thing in social media, uh, complete your LinkedIn profile. It's not just your, bi your bio anymore. Um, LinkedIn has become the business news feed for any professional that has any decision power or budget. People in HR, marketing, IT, CEOs, um, lots of people you will need to uh, get a good head start in life, your professional life, are active on LinkedIn. They're relieved that the feed that LinkedIn gives you is free of fake news, babies and puppies. So they are on LinkedIn every day and not just completing your profile, but sharing stuff, not about you, but about what interests you. If you're interested in artificial intelligence and robots, share news. You're helping people scrolling through their feed by curating interesting news and you are what you share. Mm. So, by the way, if you'd like to follow me on LinkedIn, <laughs> feel free to make a connection. I'm also very active on Twitter. My handle on Twitter is Binox, B-N-O-X and Facebook. These are my three. Never have more than three profiles on social media because nobody has time for more. Chloe Lefts, thank you very much for this really nice conversation. 
in this really nice setting as well. And um, this is the official landmark for our first live guest on the podcast. Uh, and thank you for the gift. I've been told that uh, the Bulls uh, Spaghetti is uh, world famous. Yes, it is. It is certainly among students. So enjoy the spaghetti as well. Uh, these um, one of these few days. Thanks so again, guys. thank you very much. You're welcome. We had some extra time, so this was episode 13 of season 2. We have a whole bunch of episodes recorded now, pre-recorded, so that we can take care of you during the exam period. People who are busy in the exams can then sit back, relax and listen a bit to our content as we can in the meantime study as well. So if you want that content, feel free to subscribe on your favorite platform and also to follow us on social media. See you next week. Big thanks to our content producer Baptiste Vos and also our music producer Paul de Peut.